Most people associate the term eugenics with the Nazis and the horrors of the Holocaust. But the story of eugenics, a socio-political movement which wanted to use science to create a better society, actually starts in Britain. And the scientific justifications for it were kept alive by scientists at some of the most prestigious universities in the UK. Eugenics was built on the foundations of science from the Enlightenment, including the mistaken idea of race, which is that a person's physical appearance defines abstract traits like character and intelligence. Eugenics also contained a racist political ideology, a false hierarchy in which some races were superior to others. While it may seem as though the rhetoric of racial superiority is no longer maintained at institutions of higher education today, that is not necessarily the case. In December 2018, University College London, also known as UCL, launched an inquiry into the legacy of eugenics within its walls. The inquiry was led by Professor Eola Solanke, who is Chair of EU Law and Social Justice at Leeds University. The inquiry's aim was to understand the relationship between one of the world's leading research universities and eugenics, from UCL's historical role in establishing eugenics as a science to the contemporary celebration of eugenicists by naming buildings after them. In part, the inquiry also wanted to understand what it meant that UCL had been chosen as the location for a secret eugenics conference. A few months before the inquiry was set up, a story broke in the national press that a group of researchers were meeting at UCL. They called themselves the London Conference on Intelligence. This invitation-only event brought together individuals who wanted to discuss research on the genetics of intelligence, including the connection between race and intelligence. In other words, it was a conference about eugenics. The conference, which had been held four times at UCL, happened in secret, without UCL's permission. And when it came to light, students and staff were horrified that a conference like this had been held at our campus. The fact that the conference took place here has significance because of UCL's particular past relationship with eugenics. The inquiry wanted to know, was UCL different to other UK universities? Or was the role that it played in the creation of eugenics unique? What does that history mean for those of us who study and work here today? Over the course of a year, the inquiry heard from staff and students at UCL who spoke about their research, teaching and their experiences of life on campus. Based on this, the inquiry has also looked into how eugenic ways of thinking laid the foundations of contemporary barriers to access, particularly for people of colour, disabled people and disabled people of colour. This inquiry is part of a wider critical conversation about eugenics at UCL. For example, in 2017, an exhibition about the buildings named for eugenicists was installed around the campus, accompanied by a podcast walking tour. There are many researchers, teachers, students and museum curators at UCL who have looked critically at the history of eugenics, writing books and articles, staging protests, curating exhibitions and hosting seminars and conferences in order to lay bare UCL's past and consider what this means for our future. I am one of those people. My name is Subhadra Das. I'm curator of UCL Science Collections and have spent the last eight years researching and engaging people with the history of eugenics at UCL. And that is the goal of this podcast. I'm going to be uncovering the history of eugenics and the role that UCL played in its journey from idea to scientific discipline to hidden past. 
I'll be talking to researchers from UCL and other universities. We're going to piece together this history and try to answer the question, what happens next? What is eugenics? Over the years, I have discovered that there is no single answer to this question. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think the thing with eugenics is that it means a lot of different things. When we talk about eugenics, are we talking about the concept as defined by Galton in in Mm. 1873, or are we talking about the application of similar techniques through the the earlier early 20th, 20th century in Sweden, in America, in other countries? Are we talking about the Holocaust in uh, Nazi Germany? Or are we talking about biological techniques that we use today, which don't get labelled as eugenics, but adhere to similar principles for the removal of suffering for specific diseases? Sometimes the difference in these definitions depends on the academic discipline through which someone has encountered eugenics. Ask a geneticist, and they might say... Uh, So I think it's great you're asking this because it's a really poorly defined term and it's often misused. And in some ways we can think of it as a social or political term rather than anything to do with science. Um, So the term eugenics is uh, derived from the Greek word eu, meaning well or good, and the suffix genus. So really it's referring to the good born. And eugenics in its simplest form is the idea that some selective breeding of human populations can somehow improve society. Or a psychologist... Uh, eugenics would be the set of beliefs that there is pervasive differences between uh, what they would identify as races of people and that because of those differences we should do something about that to improve the human race. So there should be policies or practices that on the basis of that improve us through selective breeding through some sort of social program. Or a historian. Um, Eugenics is generally defined as um, selective breeding to you know based on pseudoscientific principles to create a better sort of human race or human beings um i would define it slightly differently because i would say it's about inferiority and superiority because essentially it's about who decides who can breed and who can't breed and that is based on bias or an education researcher um So I would define the word eugenics as being a field of people who were interested in whether or not they could affect what sorts of genes were floating around in the population for good or for bad. And to do that, they did a little bit of something you might call science, but you might not. And they made a lot of assumptions and did some guessing. So who is right? What's the real definition of eugenics? Well, in a way, they all are. To understand how, we need to go back to the beginning. In 1883, the British scientist and statistician Francis Galton coined the term eugenics. Galton was a celebrated British Victorian scientist, probably the most important and influential scientist that most people have never heard of today. He was an explorer, a meteorologist, a mathematician, and, in all of those things, a statistician. Galton and Charles Darwin were cousins, and Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection had a huge influence on Galton and his science. Galton believed the race of British people would successively be improved from generation to generation. We greatly need, he wrote in 1883, a brief word to express the signs of improving stock. The word eugenics, he thought, would sufficiently express this idea. I spoke to Dr Debbie Chalice, a historian of race who works at the London School of Economics Library, about Galton and his work. So Galton 
he was taking um, ideas from Darwin, um, Charles Darwin, um, around evolution, but also about inheritance between sort of generations of families. And Golson actually was really interested by um, animal breeders and pigeon fanciers and that kind of thing. So he thought that he could map the same way of breeding kind of different um, sort of species um, the same onto human beings. Now, we now know that our genetic coding, you know, we are all the same. We are all the same sort of, you know, there is no such thing as race biologically. Mm-hmm. Um, but Goldson wasn't so aware of that, so wasn't aware of that in the same way that we are now. He was also racist, so he had this idea that although the races weren't different in a poly kind of racial way, but he thought that there were different tendencies in a kind of different dog way, if you like. Along with understanding that they needed to encourage the right kind of people to breed, eugenicists also believed the wrong kind of people needed to be stopped from having children. So one of the things that we've heard is that the UK never enacted any kind of mm. eugenic policies, but we came close. Um, and I'm wondering well, we kind about... of did. I mean, there's the nineteenth. So, the, yeah, there is. It is true. You see, I mean, the the, the Britain almost passed sterilisation law mm-hmm. in around 1930, but arguably there was a policy before um, the 1913 policy around mental health and putting, essentially institutionalising people who had mental health um, disorders, as they were seen at the time, or they were feeble-minded, idiots, that kind of stuff, imbeciles, mm-hmm. I think there's the other category. Which were scientific terms at the time. Yeah, which were users, and these are these were in law, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, this affected women disproportionately, particularly unmarried mothers, mm-hmm. um, who would often have their children taken away from them and could be institutionalised. Um, I mean, this is covered. I mean, this is not unknown. So, mm-hmm. but it did. It did affect. So, and to say it didn't affect Brit- Britain, I find actually really problematic because I just think of all those women who were institutionalised, who had their children taken away, who you know, who were effectively not allowed to breed because they were segregated. The historian and disability rights activist Professor Tom Shakespeare has researched how disabled people were treated in eugenic programs across the United States and Europe. And he spoke about this in his lecture, Lives Unworthy of Life, Disability Pride versus Eugenics, in January 2020. But I wonder whether, um, in the case of disabled people, the lack of recognition, lack of coverage, the lack of memorial, relates to a deeper down feeling that perhaps mercy killing of people with severe mental or physical uh, impairments is somehow more justifiable, less illogical than the murder of people on the basis of their race, religion or sexuality. Um, prejudice against disabled people predated the Nazis. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a continuity between what happened in eugenics in Germany, not euthanasia, but in eugenics in Germany. It made it very difficult to prosecute people after the war because they could say, well, look, you were doing it in America. Why is it different in Germany? Not the euthanasia, but the, the, the eugenics. Um, so uh, uh, it, there, is a, there is a continuity. Having practised on disabled people... The Nazis then extended their eugenic policies on the basis of race. They went straight from uh, the disability euthanasia to the Jewish uh, Holocaust. And all of those things that I've described, the showers of, of carbon monoxide, the teeth extractions, the ovens, they'd all been pioneered on disabled people before being adapted for extermination of Jews and other people in concentration camps. And indeed, 1941 is not the end of what they're doing. Um, uh, as I said, children were being poisoned and killed throughout the war. The Hadamar Centre, for example, uh, continued receiving children from orphanages, juvenile homes, foster cares, other institutions. 
And, and then from 1941, uh, euthanasia in the prison camps, same staff. Um, anybody who was incapable through illness of doing physical work was murdered. Up to 20,000 people murdered straight away. And then, of course, the six million uh, following on that. Historian and archivist Dr Maria Caladi was hired last year by the Inquiry and she has now been appointed Research Fellow in the History of Eugenics, based in the UCL Science and Technology Studies Department. I spoke to Maria about her role working for the Inquiry and what she was able to find in the UCL archives. Talk, talk me through the work that you've done um, and what you've discovered about, UC, about eugenics, how it happened at UCL, what were the things that happened at UCL? Now, what we know about the Galton Laboratory, essentially we know that in 1904, Galton approached uh, the University of London and Sir Arthur Rooker, who was the principal, uh, making a donation to set up the Eugenics Record Office, which mm -hmm. was the original. Um, um, and then in 1906, when that uh, fell apart, essentially... A fellow was appointed, Edgar Schuster. Mm -hmm. In 1906, either he left or um, his contract was terminated. It's a bit we of a grey area. We don't yeah, exactly know we what happened really, to Schuster. We um, yeah. tell. But in any case, the crucial point here is that Galton turns to Pearson for advice. This and is Carl Pearson. Carl Pearson, yes. And this is in 1906. Mm -hmm. And this is when Carl Pearson suggests the Francis Galton Laboratory for the study of national eugenics. Mm -hmm. Carl Pearson had been appointed Professor of Maths at UCL in 1884. He was such an ardent supporter of Galton that he was often called Galton's disciple. Um, Galton again approaches the University of London. We have another gift, if you like, yeah. which takes um, the Galton Laboratory essentially to 1911. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1911 we have the Galton Bequest mm -hmm. after um, the death um, of Francis Galton. And that's when things really start taking off a bit, okay. in the sense that we have um, Carl Pearson bringing the biometric and the Galton Laboratory together. And essentially, I mean, after 1911, I think it was in 1913 when the department was basically renamed as Department of Statistics and Eugenics. Mm -hmm. So eugenics was, the t was in the title of the department? We, yeah, exactly. And I'm quite keen, actually, when we discuss this department to make a point that it was Department of Statistics and Eugenics, because then the next question would be, what was statistics doing with eugenics? And all so the next question after that would be, well, do we need to have a closer look at the statistical papers, really, that Carl Pearson was doing? What mm -hmm. kind of research was he doing? I think that's very, very important, really. Um, and so essentially, yeah, I mean, the department stays until 1933, I think, when Carl Pearson retires. And we have um, Fisher coming up. And then obviously things become to get a bit more complicated with various renamings to mm -hmm. take us all the way to mm. now. As at many other universities, the names and functions of individual academic departments change over time. The Galton Laboratory record that we have at Special Collections, uh, that's when you go through the catalogue and you search for Galton Laboratory, we have a very comprehensive history of how the departments developed. And to be completely honest, um, that was the way to understand it, was essentially me putting it down in writing because it was so many renaming and so many... Mm -hmm a lot of people coming in and it was very difficult to really understand how the departments developed mm -hmm. in this case um, so um, yeah I mean as I said we know that in 1933 we have uh, Pearson leaving uh, Fisher taking over mm -hmm. um, the department was then split in two so we have the department of eugenics in one side and on the other side we have the department of statistics which was led by Pearson's son Egan mm -hmm. Egan Pearson keeping it in the family okay yeah <laughs> He was actually part of the Galton Laboratory as well, previous uh, yeah. to that, which was quite interesting. 
Um, so uh, Fisher retires in 1944. He was succeeded by Lionel Penrose, who mm -hmm. becomes Galton Professor. These are all successive Galton Professors, aren't they? Yes, yeah. yes, he, he was, yes. Then we have um, J.B.S. Haldane, who was Professor of Biometry at UCL already since 1929. Mm -hmm. um, he became Director of the Department of Eugenics, Biometry and Genetics. So this is the first time that we have eugenics and genetics as part of the title of the department. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was succeeded by Penrose in 1958 after he retired. Now, in 1965 was actually the first time that the word eugenics was removed from the department. 1965. 65, yes. Okay. That's when um, Penrose essentially retires and we have Harry Harris taking over. And this time the department is called Human Genetics and Biometry. Okay. We also have the renaming of the chair. Now it's Carlton uh, Professor of Human Genetics. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, this continues until 1975 when Bed Robson takes over as head of um, the Department of Human Genetics and also Galton Professor mm -hmm. um, until 1994. So essentially we have a department that developed quite a lot. It yeah. had eugenics, it had it removed, it had biometry, it had biometry removed, then mm -hmm. it had genetics, genetics being defined then as human genetics. Yeah. And I think in this context it would be quite interesting to kind of investigate why all this renaming happened. Was this an administrative decision? I mean, from what I could tell in 1933, it looks like it was pretty much a decision from the admin side of the university that there is no need now for these things to be together, let's split them. Mm -hmm. But even that, I oh, think... Oh, that's in the aftermath of Pearson retiring as well. So we've got him as an yeah. interesting character and in how yeah. much his personality was driving. Exactly. The whole thing. Yeah. So I think from this point of view, it would be quite interesting at some point to see at which point exactly eugenics stopped being appropriate mm. for being part of a title of a department, if you see what I mean. Definitely. So, Galton was instrumental in setting up the eugenics faculty at UCL, but once it got here, other researchers continued the work. Over time, the scientific tools developed in eugenics have become fundamental to a lot of science carried out today. I spoke to Tom Fern, who is Professor of Applied Statistics at UCL, to try to understand the importance of these tools and how the contributions of researchers like Galton and Carl Pearson are seen today. I know that you've learned a lot about the history uh, of eugenics and its association with some very famous names in your field uh, of statistics. Can you tell me what names like Galton and Pearson meant to you before you were familiar with this history? How were you familiar with them? As well, Pearson in particular as, as one of the people who invented modern statistics. Um, there's... He invented things like correlation of the coefficient, things like Pearson chi-squared, which are sort of staple tools of, of modern statistics. So everyone um, is still using them today? Is and it? absolutely is still using them, them today. Um, so I knew Pearson as the inventor of modern statistics. I knew Galton. His name's associated with regression. He's, he's also... I think for me, even before I started reading some of his writings, he was a bit of an eccentric. He had, he was obviously very intelligent. He had lots of um, uh, left field ideas, mm -hmm. uh, and some of them were slightly dodgy. And I think that's probably that sort of knowledge is what a lot of statisticians will have. They'll they'll know of Pearson as as a very famous statistician of Galton, who was somebody associated with him. And maybe have a slight feeling that there are cupboards somewhere with skeletons in that are better not opened. Mm. If this is how eugenics is perceived today, have things changed since the Eugenics Records Office opened in 1904? 
I spoke to Dr Georgina Brewis, the most recent editor of The World at UCL and a historian of student voices, to try and answer this question. All the sources that I've looked at um, indicate that there's a great deal of kind of being very welcome, being very supportive of this um, decision both to connect UCL to the eugenics lab that has been founded already on Gower Street, Mm -hmm. and then in 1911 when Galton dies, his bequest to create and endow a professorship, but also to donate his um, kind of material culture, so his kind of objects and his Mm -hmm. books and things. And everywhere that's mentioned, particularly in the UCL calendar and at speech days, which take place every kind of summer term, that is really um, done in a very kind of praiseworthy way. They're very kind of happy about that. I asked Maria Kiladi the same question. Was there any resistance to this work being done here that you've been able to find? No, I couldn't find any resistance really from anywhere. But then again, if you think about it, um, this is a wealthy individual approaching the university, offering a significant amount of money to set up a laboratory that obviously won't be a financial worry for the university mm-hmm. at any point because the money is just provided. Then we also have Carl Pearson that we know, I mean, quite apart from being a very driven individual. I mean, during the history of the laboratory, we're definitely between 1901 and 1925. He launched about 10 publications, so different titles, essentially. Um, He had numerous members of staff. At some point, I think um, about 11 Mm -hmm. for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, he achieved by employing primarily women. That cost him less. So essentially what the university could see was a self-funded laboratory that had a lot of members of staff working, producing a lot of publications. Of course, none of this research was going on in isolation. Eugenics research was being carried out at a number of different British and then American and European universities. Tom Shakespeare. I think in the early 20th century, there was a fear of racial degeneration. This sometimes had just racist elements in terms of people from Southern Europe or uh, traveller families uh, who would so-called you know, worsen the gene pool. There was a fear of the working classes. This was the era of mass democracy. Mm-hmm. And what happens if these uh, unregulated, ill-disciplined, uneducated people reproduce more than ruling classes? And particularly there was a fear of people with intellectual disabilities and other disabilities that... Um, Uh, this new era where there's more health, more hygiene, meant more people survived, but that they might be of a so-called inferior quality. And ideas of social Darwinism are intertwined with ideas about eugenics. And social Darwinism, of course, Herbert Spencer, is very much that survival of the fittest, Uh, we have to have the best, Uh, we must let the inferior uh, you know, die or help them. Um, these are very, very um, damaging uh, uh, ideas that were around in this era. I asked Debbie Chalice about how these perceptions of racial degeneration were manifest in UK universities in the early 20th century. You know, realistically, um, having worked in institutional history um, throughout my research, I know that all institutions, if they're formed at certain points, are going to have, you know, stories of empire um, and eugenics and, you know, various histories that, you know, um, we may not be so proud of today. So, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's there. Um, I think we were, um, so there was a movement at LSE last year, which started last year, still going, um, decolonising LSE. Mm-hmm. And they approached the library about doing an event around material in our collection that would be pertinent to thinking about uh, colonialism in the sort of history of LSE and in our collection. 
and race, of course, as well. And uh, myself and um, the curator, Indy Biller, um, sort of had a look around the archives. And to my surprise, I found the um, card, the anthropometric laboratory card mm-hmm. of Sydney Webb, um, which had been taken by Galton. Yeah. And listed all his measurements. Sydney Webb, we should say, is, is one of the is one of the founders of the LSE. So Sydney Webb is one of the fa- he's a Fabian. Um, yeah. So he's married to Beatrice Webb. Um, I can't remember her maiden name, so I won't say. It, but he's married to Beatrice, and, and of course, a lot of the Fabians were um, also eugenicists. Sydney Webb wrote a paper on population control, um, and you know, he campaigned against the poor law, but he was campaigning. Um, or more on the kind of positive eugenics, if you like to call it that, side. Mm. Um, but they they were very much opposed to Carl Pearson at UCL. The two institutions are poles apart in many, many ways, which isn't to say they're not eugenicists. Yeah. It's just that you have different types of eugenicists. Yeah, eugenics is a, is a more complex thing yeah, than, absolutely. Um, than, than perhaps other stories that we're more familiar with. So this work is kind of going on at, at, at least two universities at UCL and the LSE. Um, eugenics is a is a driving uh, was a driving force for research at lots of other places, Oxford and Cambridge. Um, how much more do you think of this story? Is, is there still to be uncovered? You uncovered a bit of the story here at UCL. You're looking at the story at the LSE. Uh, uh, is it uh, how much potential is there for other universities to find this aspect of the story, which has been hidden up until now? And I think it, I mean, there's much more to be seen. Um, I think it depends on your university or, you know, is founded, really. I think there's a lot more that could probably be seen in population control and ideas around population development. Mm-hmm. Often has its origins in um, eugenics. I spoke to geneticist and broadcaster Adam Rutherford to find out why eugenics fell from favour after World War II. He explained that scientific views about what it is that makes us human moved from an idea that we are biologically determined to a more complex idea about how our environment affects our identity. This was a development of the concept of nature versus nurture, a term Francis Galton himself had coined. Well, a better way of phrasing it is is nature via nurture. So how our genes, how our innate biological uh, characteristics are expressed through the environment in which in which we exist, not just that we're raised in, in which we exist. And so by, by the time, as we're moving into the 80s, that people are, are having the sort of sociology and behavioural psychology appear to be much more dominant in the sort of broad intellectual discourse about human behaviour. And then genetics begins to get a foothold again through new techniques, through better understanding of genetics. And, 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 and so you see this sort of pendulum swing. What we're really interested in is understanding the story about eugenics and how it happened yeah. uh, at UCL. And I'm not looking for you to be a historian of UCL. Um, but what I'm interested in is the story that you just told us in terms of the science of moving away from or thinking about eugenics in, in different ways. Um, how, who were the people at UCL that you know of um, who did that work? What was their attitude to this history after the Second World War? Um, what were the things that they, that they contributed and that we work with now? Oh, that's a hell of a question. Um, <clears throat> can I give a sort of broader question, a broader answer? Give it, yeah, give it a try. Because, I, I mean, one, one thing is that I don't think that anyone was specifically addressing the question of eug- whether eugenics worked or not. And mm. I don't think this was necessarily a focus of anyone's 
work that yeah. we're going to in, in the post-war era I'm going to sit down and here's my research project it is does eugenics work mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware that right. wasn't really a project yeah. but we we see the continuing develop of development of genetics of biology and in general biology becomes molecular mm-hmm. a lot of the fusion of evolutionary biology and mathematics and genetics occurs you know 30 yards from where we're sitting um and a lot of that is derived from uh well Initially, Galton's work, followed by Pearson's work, and we're sitting in the Pearson building recording this, mm-hmm. followed by uh, Ronald Fisher's work, who was the next Galton professor. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people after the war at um, UCL, if we mine their, what they said enough, mm-hmm. sometimes even superficially, it's very easy to find things that are culturally unacceptable today, which include race and racial epithets and plenty of misogyny and so on Mm -hmm. but I think it is fair to say that there is just a general movement away from rigid Mm -hmm. adoption of of, uh, eugenics and racist policies. It was the development of the science and it was the the continuing act of carrying out that research that meant that we were able to look at this critically. I think that's right. These ideas that motivated much of the work within eugenics are now some of the primary questions in the field of genetics. It's interesting that the foundations of genetics can be traced to eugenics, and yet arguably genetic research has done a lot to disprove eugenic thinking. To see how these two disciplines are distinct, I spoke to geneticist Dr Lucy Van Dorp. Okay, so it's really, I think, about um, intention. And eugenics is really trying to find heritable traits, to find genes and select those, improve on those. These are things passed from parents to their offspring. Exactly. Um, And bear in mind that eugenics was really happening before we knew much about, well, we didn't know the DNA sequence. So it was uh, based on kind of observations of heritable or perceived to be heritable traits. Um, Whereas genetics is very different. You know, we've got genome sequences. We're really interested in not improving genes, but actually just studying them, understanding them. And so uh, genetics is really interested on in terms of actually characterising that link between genotype and phenotype. So what your genes do and what your physical characteristics are. And what's quite interesting is actually by their kind of nature, both eugenics and genetics require studying how populations vary. But like I said, the intention is different. So genetics is looking at how populations are different to each other, but also really importantly, looking at how they're similar to each other Mm -hmm. and understanding those biological processes that give rise to these similarities, that give rise to these differences. Whereas eugenics is kind of making this explicit assumption that there are variations between populations and that there could somehow be ascribed some kind of value to those. Um, For example, some populations might be uh, poorer or more prone to be more intelligent or Mm -hmm. uh, more likely to be criminals, for example. And where genetics comes in is this kind of really understanding the biological mechanisms of genes. You know, we know very clearly that most of those traits, all of those traits have no genetic basis. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really uh, eugenics is working on kind of outdated stereotypes and genetics is allowing us to completely debunk those stereotypes and say, actually, we see that traits are complicated, that your environment is incredibly important and that it's almost impossible to... Uh, pick out genes for some of the traits that eugenicists were particularly caring about. What are the principles uh, in contemporary genetics and in the science that you carry out that now will help us to critique the idea of race? 
Yes, that's a really good question. It turns out, actually, if you look at patterns of genetic variation across humans, and and we do vary, there are genetic differences, they're subtle, but they are there. Uh, They follow what we term an isolation by distance model. Okay, can you explain that a little bit more for us? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So what that um, means is that the genetic variations that we observe between people can be almost entirely explained by the genetic, uh, by the geographic distance between them. Mm -hmm. And so... um, you know, this isn't rocket science, essentially people throughout history, in fact, people still today are more likely to meet someone and have children with someone who lives around the corner that lives on the, than lives on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And so our genomes carry that legacy. And so if we look at the genetic variation across global human populations, we find that we can explain it almost entirely using geography. So there's differences, but it's just geography. It doesn't really mean very much. So if I take you know, racially ascribed uh, categories and I overlay them with a map of genetic diversity, those two things do not marry up. And so I think this is one of the really fundamental contributions that genetics can make to discussions about race in that actually, you know, there's not a biological basis, but also that there's no such thing really as a pure genetic population. Mm -hmm. So if you look over, for example, the last 4,000 years using computational genetics techniques, you find that virtually every population we've tested is a mix of many others. So really the idea of a single population, a single race, um, just doesn't bear out. So eugenics was a scientific discipline that caught the public imagination, along with an urge to try and control the development of the human race. It found its home here, at UCL, both because key advocates of eugenics were already working here, and the fact that the creation of a eugenics department came with an investment in the university, which only helped to sweeten the deal. Once established in its new academic home, eugenics gained in popularity. Its new status as a science was before, during and after the Second World War to rationalise some of the greatest atrocities in human history, and its global adoption severely restricted who could speak out against it. Over time, though, things have been changing. Eugenics and the policies enacted in its name have fallen out of favour. This is in part down to new science – Research conducted in fields such as genetics have changed the ways in which we think about how humans are made and what makes us who we are. In the second part of this podcast, we are going to look at the ways in which UCL remembers its history and whether or not the legacy of eugenics still affects us today. As a historian of UCL, Georgina Brewis has looked critically at the ways in which UCL has remembered its history of eugenics. Is there a problem with the way that we've chosen to remember these sorts of histories at UCL, things like the history of eugenics? Yeah, I mean, I think that in some cases, though, we have been guilty of kind of over-exaggerating the good things about about, um, Mm -hmm. UCL in a way that is problematic because it doesn't allow us to actually investigate the real history. So, for example, there's a constant claim that, that, um, you know, UCL is founded as this place opening up higher education to this wide range of social classes, people from all races, all backgrounds. I read that in the syllabus when I first came to be an undergraduate. Yeah, Yeah. these kind of really quite extreme claims. And I had students in my class the other day talking about how they thought, you, you know, UCL was open to people from deprived backgrounds in the 1820s. And I had to point out to them that, no, that the 1820s, what was exciting and progressive was the fact that it was open to middle class youth. Mm -hmm. So it was absolutely a middle class institution, the youth of our middling rich, as the kind of the founder wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And that it was open to people of any religion 
or no religion, nice. particularly at the time, Jewish people, nonconformists, Catholics, those were the groups that couldn't go to university in England and, and wanted to come in. Now, that in itself is a really important story of, of, of progressive, of, of progression and change. But we we kind of, we deny that story if we talk in much bolder terms that just doesn't stack up historically. And so it's actually kind of, it, it, it devalues the actual truth of the story. The way we remember this history has implications for how we teach the next generation about eugenics. I spoke with Daniel Richardson, Professor of Experimental Psychology at UCL. Daniel uses objects from UCL's historic science collections to teach his students basic principles of psychology. This includes objects that once belonged to Francis Galton and to the eugenics laboratory at UCL. How much of the history of eugenics did you know about uh, before you started working here? Were you aware of the particular history of UCL and eugenics before you started working here? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I was aware that there was a lot of sign, a lot of sort of energy and interest in this that was from uh, that was driven mainly by London and in America as well. That it was tied into early understanding of things like mental retardation. People try to tie to uh, genetics and to try to think about racial differences as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew there was these two sort of um, centres that were pushing the ideas forward, but I didn't specifically realise they were tied so concretely to UCL. Do you? Um, and I'm, I'm mindful of always making people representative of kind of a, a larger um, a group that they don't necessarily speak for. But I'm interested to know in terms of your profession and in terms of psychology more broadly, how much is this history, um, uh, how much is it something people are aware of? Is it something that you learn about when you're studying? Is it something you were taught in the same way that you're teaching your students now? No, not at all. Uh, Tell I me don't... more about that. <laughs> uh, I don't... Maybe it's that I don't remember what I was taught as an undergraduate, uh, but I don't, certainly don't have a memory of us looking at that uh, when we learnt about personality. And of course, there's only so much you can teach, right? Sure. So what they tended to do is to tell us what is the case now. Mm-hmm. And what they didn't go into is what are the intellectual roots of those things? What are the political forces that shape some of those views? Another way in which the legacy of eugenics is still with us at UCL is in the names of some of its buildings. Tom Fern can tell us at first hand about how some of the buildings came to be named. You've said that you were part of uh, a conversation which resulted in naming the Galton Lecture Theatre as such in the statistics department. Um, when did that happen and how did that decision come about? So I can date it fairly precisely because the department was in, um, from its inception, was in the Pearson building mm-hmm. um, until the year 2000. And over over the Millennium New Year, we were moved to 1 to 19 Torrington Place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the renaming would have happened exactly then. Yes. And it was for a decision that was actually quite an important one and has upset a lot of people. It was a very casual decision. Mm-hmm. So lots of decisions were being taken. We were uh, completely refurbishing one floor of 1 to 19 Torrington Place. Uh, making all sorts of decisions about office sizes, who'd go where, uh, and all sorts of other important decisions. And I guess the motivation was we wanted to take a bit of our history with us Mm -hmm. because the department's proud of its history. It had been here in the Pearson building um, for um, a long time. There's a Pearson lecture theatre here. Mm -hmm. We couldn't take either of those names with us because the Pearson lecture theatre still exists for Mm -hmm. the moment. Yeah. 
So we were just looking around for a name that captured some history. And of course, Galton gave the money through his will that founded what was the first Department of Statistics in the world. Yeah, that, um, was, that was a known fact. And that, that was, was a known fact. And so it seemed reasonable to some people, to many people, to just name the new lecture theatre after Galton. I wasn't responsible for the naming, but I could have stopped it. And, and I feel sad now that I didn't. But that's kind of the nature of how these things happen, isn't it? They're not necessarily deliberately meant to be hurtful or or bad. It's just this is the way things happen in a large institution. Yes, that's right. I mean, of, of course, one of the things that might have happened mm. is that there might have been some institutional comeback on that, mm. and there was none. Right. Uh, nobody queried that mm. at all. With that in mind, and so knowing now what you know now, and possibly your colleagues are more cognizant of this history and, and the things that um, the things that Galton and Pearson did and wrote about, do you think that a similar conversation would have the same outcome today? No, absolutely not. Um, certainly not if I was involved, and, and I think not if not from other people being involved. I think things have changed. Um, it was a mistake twenty years ago, but it would be uh, a much more unforgivable mistake now. What do you think has changed? What people know and perhaps the balance that between how how we value Pearson's contributions as a statistician and how we view his contributions to eugenics, uh, and that's changed, I think. Mm. And I, th I think that's changed partly as a result of pressure from students. Mm -hmm. I mean, pressure from people like Nathaniel Coleman, who's made us actually stand back and look at it. Dr Nathaniel Coleman worked at UCL to engage students and staff with the legacy of eugenics and particularly the work of people like Galton and Pearson. The work of Dr Coleman and others highlights that it's not just the buildings that bear the legacy of UCL, but the science within them. I, I have thought about this one because I've listened to people arguing that we should that these methods are tainted by their association. And the only thing that I can think of that that may have resulted from the early history is that statistics has what I would see as a, a bit of an obsession with looking for differences, doing p-values, proving things are different. And and maybe, and this is just my personal view, it's not, I'm not a historian, maybe that's associated with the early history of statistics where what they were trying to do was prove racial differences, for example, identify sub subgroups so you could say, look, we're a different group and therefore we should not mix with this group. Adam Rutherford. We, we talk about the phrase how science is standing on the shoulders of giants and that is an important maxim because it shows that we are, knowledge is not... Uh, gained afresh, we build on on the past, but it's also really important to remember that we stand on the shoulders of a bunch of racists too, and to know that history is really important because the percolation of those ideas from the 17th century onwards into the modern era is still present. Mm -hmm. It is present in science to a much lesser extent, but it is certainly present in, in society. And of course, the legacy of eugenics extends well beyond abstract academic thinking. I spoke to education and oracy researcher and practitioner Amanda Morgan about education policy in the UK and how it's been informed by eugenic thinking and how it affects our lives in very real ways today. Yeah, so I suppose the, con the, the perspective I'm coming from is that my the charity that I work with, along with lots of charities in the education sphere, is interested in uh, narrowing the gap 
um, and that gap, what the, who, who that gap is between <laughs> varies from charity to charity, but broadly it's to do with the fact that in the UK at the moment, um, your uh, educational outcomes are determined often by the circumstances of your birth. So it's by how rich or how posh or how many books on your home there was from your parents, uh, not sort of something about you and your abilities, whatever that might be. Your innate abilities. Your innate abilities. So one of the factors in that debate is is that question of what is an innate ability? People often think about that as the DNA of that child. And then it becomes really messy, right? How do you detangle the fact that you've got your DNA from your parents to the fact that you might have got your, you know, love of reading or you're interested in science or, you know, the fact they do the Times crossword every day or whatever from them as well. Um, so that debate about how much is nature, how much is nurture, uh, comes up again and again. Uh, a recent example would be that there was uh, some debate in the press a couple of years ago um, about how much of your GCSE outcomes is determined by your DNA. Mm. And a scientist had done some is research that on that. Is that a question that people are asking in this day and age? That is, that is a question that people are asking. Yeah, I think it's difficult because the question that people in the education field are asking and the question that scientists are asking is really different, but it sounds the same. Uh-huh. So an educationalist is interested in how much can I do? If I'm a teacher and I've got 30 kids and they all seem a bit different when they start, how much can I do to level the play- playing field and get them all an A or get them all a C or whatever it is you're trying to do? Whereas a scientist is often asking, what's the relative role of the environment and DNA at the moment for some group of people at some point in history? It's an abstract problem. It's an abstract problem. And it sounds like it's the same, and it sounds like the scientific question could give you the answer to the educationalist question, but often it can't. So in, in that scenario, and with, with different people asking different questions, what does that have to do with eugenics? Yes, I mean, so if we take an example of why the, eugen- the legacy of eugenics matters for an education policy, let's take the example of like special education. Because of the legacy of eugenics and because of the connection between IQ and making differences between kids on IQ and racism, we know that different people are going to have really different intuitive responses to that. So if I go to middle class parent A and say, oh, you know, little Johnny, we've just always known he's special and every child is special and they all need a personalised, uh, they all need personalised learning that middle class parent's going to think like, oh, yeah, you know, little Johnny's going to get all the extra special support that he needs to fulfill his potential in the world mm. and become an astronaut or whatever. Yeah. And that's a very reasonable way for that person to, that's a reasonable thing for that person to think. But when you also know that um, the history of special education in the UK was heavily influenced by the eugenics movement, was heavily influenced by people who were pro-apartheid in South Africa, who thought that, people who weren't white were inferior, um, who thought that people with disabilities were worthless and, and, and should never be allowed to reproduce and so on and so forth, it becomes really different. So when you know that a dis- in, in, in the, well, still today, um, black Caribbean boys in particular, but also girls, are much more likely to be excluded from mainstream education. And when you know that in the 1960s, that was happening at a greatly disproportionate rate, mm-hmm. huge numbers of non-white children were being sent to what were then called schools for the educationally subnormal uh, or schools for the maladjusted. And that comes from this history of IQ testing and so on. And the murky waters and the difficulty, um, the difficulty in the science of, it, of, of being able to pull apart 
what is something that's to do with DNA and what is something that's to do with environment. Um, and so people have attributed all sorts of differences which we should attribute to the environment to something which is inherent within those children. They've said, well, because you were rubbish at this test when you were 11, you will never be able to do mm. X, Y, and Z. Yeah. When actually what we know is that all that that test is telling you about is what you're capable of doing at the age of 11, right? What, what have your experiences been so far? How well have you been tutored to pass that test? It's easier to say that those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it than it is to make people take note and truly understand the ways in which eugenics has shaped our modern world. I posed this more practical question to our contributors as they contemplated what UCL's future might look like, starting with Tom Fern. I don't know exactly how we talk about it, but I do know it's important we do talk about it. Um, so for a long time, the statistics department had a web page um, but. Uh, one page on its website which had a, uh, a biography of Carl Pearson and it mentioned eugenics in about one line. Um, I've taken that down mm -hmm. and it needs to go up again and it needs to have a link to a lot of material on eugenics. We can't force feed this to people but mm -hmm. we can make sure they can see it. A large part of Tom Shakespeare's work, especially the work he's done with Anne Carr, has been to find answers to this question. I've always been very interested in the, in the genome and obviously also in the history of eugenics. Anne is a science historian. And what we wanted to do was to tell a story which many people don't know about uh, the various tendencies of eugenics and euthanasia prior to 1945, but also to continue that story and to try and bring in how the Human Genome Programme and contemporary reproductive screening is influenced by our eugenic thinking. And by no means are we saying that, for example, the offer of screening with informed consent is eugenic. That's not what we would say. But those currents are there, and uh, even in our own thinking, we're infected by some of these ideas. And we need to understand it, to be aware of it, to have different information about the lives of disabled people so that people can make truly informed decisions about their families which are about quality of life and, and, and uh, what they want in their lives and all of these other aspects of individual choice within a society where disabled people are included, mm -hmm. where we have choices. I whiz along. I got a bus to work this morning. I went to my accessible office. I whizzed along to this podcast. That's how it should be. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky, but more people should be included in those ways. To conclude this podcast, I asked the contributors why they think it's important we should care about the legacy of eugenics. Let's go back to Amanda Morgan. This part is not about doing... The bit where you do impact mm -hmm. is not about just doing more science. It's not about like adding up more stuff and doing more experiments. It's about going out into the world and convincing real people that they should do something because of your science. And it's about being able to explain why your science matters and to do that, you need to know your history, you need to know about eugenics, you need to know about racism and classism and ableism in this country. Because if you don't know that, it's going to be really difficult to have a conversation where you respect people with different histories. And you don't just say they're being silly or hysterical or unreasonable or that they don't understand the science and that's why they disagree with you. 
I think if you want to have a conversation with somebody who, for example, you're advocating for um, more uh, like individual education, you're advocating for special schools or whatever it might be, and you're doing that because you think the science genuinely supports that position, that children really are different because of something inherent in them, because of their DNA, and that you can't fix that with the environment in any way other than treating some children differently to other children. I think you need to be able to respect the fact that some parents are going to hear that and they're going to remember that legacy of special schools being dumps for poor children, for working class children, for black children, for disabled children, who the government and who teachers thought would never amount to anything. And that's not ancient history, that's not hundreds of years ago, that's something that could have happened to like my parents. But that's something that's within a generation, right? That's within, that's within grasp. And some would argue that's something that's still happening today. So unless you know about that history and why that came about, you can't have a conversation with that mum who's worried that her kid's going to get written off forever. Because, you know, obviously teachers want the best for, their, for children. Obviously the government wants the best for everyone. But that's not so obvious if you know about that history and that past. If you're worried that because of the research you're doing, people keep saying you're a Nazi or they keep saying you're a racist or whatever and you're upset about that, I can see that would be very upsetting. But I think that if you want to make a difference, you have to ask yourself, well, why are people saying that? Well, there might be a reason why people are connecting the research that I'm doing with 150 years of eugenics. And maybe I need to do a better job of explaining why that's not the research that I'm doing. As Georgina Brewers reminds us, being honest about this history is important. Who we are today and how we write about who we are today sends a really strong signal to the students, to the staff that we work with today. You know, I think that's around, um, that, that's kind of obvious. If we don't value the stories of, say, students or, say, women or, say, people of colour within the university and in their histories, um, I think that's... Uh, that's problematic. I mean, I've got another kind of example that I did, and, you know, in the world of UCL, I've put in just these tiny little hints. Mm -hmm. That's all I was really able to do (laughs) in that book, these tiny little hints of problematic histories. So there's a a couple of lines um, about how in the 1960s, students are getting very engaged around anti-racism and uh, particularly anti-apartheid protest. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they are also slamming the doors in the faces of black students who are inviting them to sit with them at lunch and those stories are represented in our student newspapers Mm -hmm. but they haven't been investigated and they haven't been told and that is part of you know these problematic troubling histories of progressive politics and anti-racism that we don't always want to accept but Mm -hmm. again there's a lot really there to discuss and to kind of examine. And if you think we are making this history too personal I'll refer you to Professor Tom Shakespeare. I think it's inevitable that these stories are personal in a way that, um, you know, my Jewish friends have lost grandparents to the Holocaust. It cannot be other than personal. But it's more than that because it's about a warning from history about how human beings are capable of behaving. Uh, My father was in Nazi Germany in in 1933 to 1936. He went there every summer to get treatment because he had restricted growth. It was spurious treatment. It would never have helped him. But the doctor who gave him that treatment was a Nazi. Yeah, mine is not the only family to be affected by this. I had dinner last week with somebody whose his father was under kinder transport. His grandparents were killed in, in Auschwitz. We are a generation that lives this. Uh, I am the second of my line to have restricted growth. My daughter is restricted growth. 
Uh, I left her sleeping in my house when I came to work. She's pregnant. Her first baby is due in March and will have restricted growth like me, like her and like my father. All of these things mark us. In this podcast, you've heard how eugenics developed from a Victorian scientist's idea for solving society to being a solid bricks-and-mortar laboratory at a leading UK university. It was from these scientific foundations that the Nazis built their state and justified their systemic extermination of peoples. Even though scientists came together after the war to disavow the ideas of eugenics, we've heard that change was slow in the making and that eugenic ways of thinking continue to affect our lives in very real ways today, often in ways we aren't aware of. At the turn of the 20th century, UCL played an instrumental role in establishing eugenics as a science. At the start of the 21st, from student activism, to reflective teaching, to exhibitions, and the inquiry into the history of eugenics at UCL, we are trying to raise people's consciousnesses about this history and its effect on our present. And while we'd all like to believe that eugenics is ancient history, it's a history we need to be mindful of. Just as eugenics means different things to different people, the history of eugenics means different things depending on your point of view. For scientists working in the fields influenced by eugenics, from genetics to statistics and psychology and beyond, this is a story about what happened when bad science created bad policy, and that what we need to do now is to keep an eye out for bad science. For those of us who are part of a community of people who have been marginalised, discriminated against, harassed and abused on the basis of that science, we know that keeping an eye out for bad science is not as easy as it sounds. At UCL, we're still at the beginning of the process of understanding how the same history came to affect people differently. It's a history we all have to acknowledge and reflect on if we're all going to live here together. You have been listening to Living with Eugenics, a podcast about science and how we remember it at UCL. We are very grateful to all of our contributors who gave up their time and their wonderful insight. They were, in order of appearance, Professor Tom Fern, Professor Daniel Richardson, Dr Adam Rutherford, Dr Lucy Van Dorp, Dr Debbie Chalice, Amanda Morgan, Professor Tom Shakespeare, Dr Maria Kiladi, and Dr Georgina Bruis. We would also like to thank UCL Communications and Marketing for their support in funding this project. Living with Eugenics was recorded by Phil Mason from UCL Digital Media, produced by Anna Cornelius, written and presented by myself, Subhadra Das, with additional writing from Anna Cornelius and Keris Bradley. It was edited by Keris Bradley. <laughs>